Why do you think our socialites will find today's episode unique? I'm going to walk them through a very complex homicide investigation where the victim's body was never recovered. Even more challenging, the crime scene produced no evidence of what actually happened to her. But I think I know where he hid the body. Happy Valentine's Day, socialites. You're invited to indulge in exceptional storytelling. Delight your insatiable desires for scandalous schemes and criminal conspiracies. Socialite Crime Club, recounting misdeeds. So this case is going to start off with a missing person. And our missing person is Nicole Willis Waller. Last seen on February 13th by her boyfriend. Her last communications were on February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2013. Who did she communicate with? Friends, just text message. Nicole is a chronic texter. But I've seen these types of people. Not like this you haven't. Nicole is also a terrible speller. Oh, she uses you, like the letter U for you all the time. She abbreviates everything. I've got hundreds of her text messages. Mm -hmm. I get a headache every time I try to sort through them. And her eyes are not capitalized. Yeah. And I was feeling like really judgmental when I first was reading some of her text messages and I got about halfway through, I'm starting to get this pounding headache. Mm -hmm. And one of the responses she got from one of her friends is, I think I understand what you're saying, but it takes a lot of brain power <laughs> to decipher your text messages. You know, there is so much truth in that. I become very irritated when people send me text messages where the spelling is improper or the first letter of the sentence is not capitalized yes. or they break up words. They shorten words into sh some type of weird shorthand. That drives me crazy. Yeah, Nicole would have driven you crazy with her text messages. Okay. The missing persons report, though, isn't going to be filed until February 16th. So I really want to dial in the timeline on this case. It's going to be really important. In 2013, Valentine's Day fell on a Thursday. So February 14th is a Thursday. Okay. Nicole is last seen by her boyfriend, Cody, on the 13th, which is a Wednesday. The morning of the 14th, she texts one of her friends that she's getting ready to leave and drive home. She's on the eastern side of Montana. She lives on the western side of Montana. She's never heard from after that. On the 16th, which is a Saturday, her sister reports her missing. So that's the first official report that there's a missing person. Nobody's seen or heard from her. And what, where does she live in Montana on the eastern side? So she actually lives in Kalispell, which is up in the mountains, beautiful western Montana. When you see all the beautiful pictures of Montana, it's yes. over there. She's visiting her boyfriend, Cody, who actually lives in Fairview. It's close to Sydney, Montana. It's basically the center of the state on the eastern border. So it's right on the North Dakota border. There may okay. be a couple miles from North it's Dakota. It's not as mountainy there, I don't think. It is flat, it is open, and it is a lot of oil fields. In fact, her boyfriend, Cody, the reason he lives there is he's a mechanic, like a diesel mechanic, mm -hmm. for a company that does work in the oil fields. Okay. Now, Cody Johnston... He's going to be our suspect. And I think sometimes I hate making suspects, especially of heinous crimes like this one's going to be, somewhat famous, or I hate giving them the notoriety that they committed this crime. To me, Cody Johnson looks like Shrek. So I'm going to call him oh, Shrek. This is his photo. He does look a little Shrek-like, oh, doesn't wait he? Wait till I give you the side profile. We should make his skin green when we put this on <laughs> I, YouTube. I like that idea. We'll give him little ears on top of his head. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to call him Shrek. So anytime I refer to Shrek, the rest of this episode, it is at the time our victim, Nicole's boyfriend, Cody Johnston. Cody, like I said, is a diesel mechanic out of this oil drilling company, and that's the only reason he's in this part of the state. He makes really good money, though. He makes six figures. Uh, it's a booming area. It's a booming industry. Mechanics are in high demand. Nobody wants to live there for the most part, so he's out there, and they pay very, very well. He's also very generous with his money, so he pays for a lot of Nicole's stuff, and we're going to get into some of Nicole's issues is a good way to put it. Okay. The center of this entire episode, I want people to understand there's this house. This house is in Kalispell where Nicole lives. Uh, Nicole has three kids from a previous relationship, nothing to do with Cody. She lives in Kalispell. Cody has actually purchased or bought 
a house in Kalispell for her. And they have this written agreement where she is buying the house from him, but she's already paid money. I think she's got about $10,000 invested into this house. And they have this contract that she's paying him and that she's buying the house from him. Do we know how many children she has from another relationship? So she has three. An older daughter, when I say older, maybe early teens at this time, and then two younger boys. Okay. She had three kids. She's going through a divorce with her current husband at this time. And she's actually set to sign the divorce papers on Monday. So if you think of the 14th being Thursday, so the, the 16th, yeah, the 16th when she's reported missing is on a Saturday. On the 18th, she's due back in Kalispell to actually sign the divorce papers. Okay. Now, Nicole had driven her car by herself all the way from Kalispell to Fairview, which by the way is about nine and a half hours. It's a long drive. And she's there to visit Cody kind of for Valentine's Day. It's a Valentine's Day thing. Okay. But her and Cody have a lot of issues going back and forth. And I've got to back up a little bit in history to get everybody's head wrapped around why these issues are really coming to a head while she's in Fairview during Valentine's Day. But Fairview, again, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Her house that he bought for her and that she invested 10000 in is in Kalispell, not Correct. Fairview. Correct. He lives in Fairview because that's where his job is at. Okay. And she's out there to visit him. She wants to see with him. Now, she does have a lot of stuff at his house in Fairview because they've lived together in Fairview off and on over the years. Okay. They've broken up a number of times. Cody's dating another girl on the side, which we'll get to in a minute. Oh, the name this of is Amber. never good. No, we have a full love triangle here. Now, Nicole, she has some medical issues. She's actually, and I looked into it a couple times, and I, I'm not going to lie, I can't speak to the specifics of them, but there's some type of either neurological brain type issues that she just has a lot of medical issues. Because of these medical issues, she's on a lot of medicine and painkillers, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of wrecked her life. It's taken over, and she is clearly addicted to some of these painkillers. Oh, okay. Methadone being the primary. Oh, no. Methadone addiction is very, very difficult. And I'm not taking anything away from Nicole on this episode by getting into this a little bit, but I need people to understand when your significant other is addicted to methadone, it is a very, very challenging relationship. Right. I don't think it's just your relationship with a partner or a spouse. I think it impacts multiple relationships in your life with your siblings, your parents, your friends. A hundred percent. And I'm not defending anything about Shrek on this case, but I will acknowledge there's some, some pretty clear challenges here. Because of that, they're on and off again with this dating, if you will. And the last time they were off and Cody was dating his new girlfriend, Amber, Nicole tried to figure out a ploy to get Cody back. Okay. And Amber, how does he know her? Where did he meet her? I don't know where he met her. She's a school teacher. Okay. She's an innocent little school teacher. Oh, these school teachers. Yeah, you know how they are. Yes, we don't pay them enough, that's for sure. (laughs) Anyway, Nicole's got to figure out how to get Cody back. How does she pull Shrek away from Amber? How does she sink her talons back into him? Yes. Pregnancy. (sighs) I'm pregnant. Hmm. But she's not. She lied. Not only did she lie, she took it one step further. And this is kind of hard for me to to really explain or wrap my head around. When we start talking about a victim in the beginning of an episode, I want our people to love this victim. There's some issues we got to deal with here. She took, I think it's a family member, maybe a cousin's ultrasound. And she cut the date off the bottom because it was from like a year or two previous. And she sent Shrek this ultrasound of her cousin who was pregnant and said that that was her ultrasound. And oh, by the way, Shrek, that's a little baby Shrek in my tummy. Oh, that is cunning. It is. And Shrek trying to do the right thing takes her back. Oh. So their relationship is somewhat back on. He's got Amber in the the wings right now and he's trying to figure all this out. Sure. So when she goes out there around Valentine's Day, it's important for everybody to be tracking this prior history. There's all this cloud of just nonsense, right? When she's there. Right. And we're going to get into a lot of text messages that's happening. Here is Amber. Oh, okay. Amber does not live in Fairview either. She lives, I think in Lewiston. Mm -hmm. So she's in and out. So Cody is just working his ass off all the time. And then every once in a while, he will have Amber visiting. And every once in a while, he will have Nicole visiting. Hmm. So for Valentine's Day, Nicole's out there. But Amber knows. Amber knows what's going on. And Amber knows the history as well that Cody went back to Nicole because she was pregnant with his baby. So she's feeling irritable. Maybe just a little bit. Mm -hmm. But then she also finds out Nicole's not really pregnant. So Amber's clued into, okay, she's playing all kinds of games with who I want to be my man, if you will. 
do we know when this photo of them were taken? Was this taken after Nicole was out of the picture? Yes, I'm I'm 99.9% sure. I can't put a, a timestamp on it, but I feel very comfortable in reviewing the case. This is probably taken, I'm going to guess, around 2014. They look like a very happy couple here. Well, they should be around 2014. We'll get there. Okay. So Nicole is set to leave Thursday morning, Valentine's Day morning. She's texting people the two days leading up to that, that she's coming back to Kalispell. There's a ton of documentation. She needs money. She does not have any money. Does and she work? No. She is very dependent on some of like her Medicare, Medicaid. I don't think it's Medicaid. Like government funding health care? Yes. Yeah. And she's expecting a check and she's waiting on this check. And the reason she needs this check is it's gas money to get her home. It's a nine and a half hour drive. So there's a lot of text messages where she's talking to people in Kalispell and she's even trying to borrow money. She's trying to get home. And she was actually looking at leaving on the 13th, mm. but she doesn't drive well at night, she says. So she's going to leave the morning of the 14th. So it's, it's pretty well set. Amber is on her way in the next day on the 15th. So as Nicole is leaving on Thursday, Amber's due to arrive on Friday. Very important fact. These are to very tight timelines for Shrek. Yeah, Shrek is he's he's juggling. Right. Well, after she sends a text message and it's around 7:25 in the morning on the 14th to a friend in Kalispell, I'm on my way. She's never heard from again. Never seen again, never heard from again. To this day, she has never been seen since. And this is her missing person flyer. One of them. There's about five out there. This is a missing persons flyer that was generated. Her sister, Carmen, is actually going to report her missing on Saturday, February 16th. Okay. And we'll we'll put this up and it kind of gives you guys an idea of what she looked like and some of the details. And and most of those we've explained at this point. Law enforcement did talk to Cody pretty quick because he was the last one to see her. He gives them a story that, yeah, no, just look at her text messages, uh, she left. She even texted that she left. I was working that day. In fact, not only was I working that day, we were having issues on the 13th and I just didn't want to be around her anymore. So I spent the night in this little camp trailer at my work site, about 15, 20 minutes away from my house. She was at the house. Oh, by the way, I took a picture of that when I stayed there that night. At his trailer? It wasn't even his, it was a friend of his. Okay. And then I got up from the trailer the next morning. I worked all day. I went home about 12, 1230 that afternoon for lunch and she was gone. And I haven't seen her since. I really hope that you guys find her. And by the way, I love her kids. I've spent a lot of money, time and effort helping her raise her kids. Man, mm-hmm. this really, this really breaks me up. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. I'm going to go back to work. <laughs> okay. And he's texting Amber at the same time. I've got to go to the police station. They want to talk to me about Nicole. Okay. I'm there. Okay. I'm leaving. Everything's fine. It's kind of interesting. Hmm. A couple weeks pass, and Nicole's vehicle is found on the Indian Reservation, just north of Fairview, in a little city or just outside a little city called Poplar, P-O-P-L-A-R. Poplar has the nickname, by the way, of Stab City. <laughs> it's pretty violent. Oh, yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Because it's on the reservation, the FBI gets involved. So the FBI is going to go out there and actually recover the vehicle. They force entry into the vehicle, worrying that maybe she's in there. And the car is just full of stuff. It's packed. So she was clearly prepared to leave and move out. Yes. Move her things out of his house. Yes. She has that thing stacked to the brim. When they get in there, they hear the weirdest high-pitched screaming coming from the back of the car. When Because I think they had to break a window to get in. They force entry into this car. Okay. And then they hear this crazy screaming. And there's all this pandemonium. And they open yes. up the back. Yes. Two guinea pigs, almost dead from the cold weather, starving to death, no water. Oh, I, it's really sad when guinea pigs die. So just a little shortcut here, a little trade-off of a story. My daughter, she must have been about nine or ten, and she had a guinea pig, but she wasn't really good at consistently cleaning out the cage. Like, a lot of kids aren't really good at taking care of their pets when it's their first pet. You have to constantly encourage them. But... We were living in a, a smaller place and I could smell the guinea pig cage from the living room. And it was in her bedroom. And I kept telling her, you need to clean out that cage. You need to clean out that cage. So one morning I couldn't take the smell anymore. So when I took them to school, I told her to set the guinea pig cage outside on the porch. Just set it out there. Just And when you get home from school, because it was a half day, when you get home from school, you need to clean the cage. 
Well, she does everything that I ask of her, except she forgets to fill the water on the guinea pig cage. Now, I don't even know how long this poor guinea pig has been out of water. You're starting to describe more of a guinea pig homicide than a guinea so pig tragedy. So I go outside to check on it when I get back from dropping them off at school. And the sun was coming up. It, was, it wasn't hot. It was maybe, I don't know, high 60s, low 70s. And the poor little guinea pig is dead in its cage. I don't it's think like, it ran out of water that fast. Its little pink tongue was just hanging out. <laughs> it was terrible. It was terrible. And I thought to myself, why do their pets always have to die on my watch? They're fish. Well, really, it was just fish and guinea pigs at that point, but no other pets. But it was terrible. So I can imagine what these poor officers felt when they got on scene and saw these two poor guinea pigs there. Yeah, but they lived. The FBI did a successful rescue. So the guinea pigs lived. The guinea pigs lived. Oh, that's good. good. Yeah. Just in time, they found it. All of her stuff, though, like I said, is in the vehicle. The vehicle's packed full of all this other stuff. There's really nothing in the car that's going to help the case other than it's dumped on the side of the road out by Poplar. There's no sign of Nicole. There's really no evidence to be spoken about in mm -hmm. the side to say, well, maybe she was hurt. Maybe there's blood. Maybe there's something. Nothing. And there were no witnesses to see her pull the car in or maybe somebody else? No. And it sat there for what I believe was at least a week or two before anybody even reported it. So kind of, but it's out on the reservation. It's just outside of town. So it's a rural area. Sure. Yeah. Never reported. When law enforcement speaks to Shrek again, they start talking to him off and on. He's done a couple of interviews. Something comes up really interesting. That morning, according to Shrek, she was really annoying him with text messages and phone calls. And he got to the point he was just pissed off about it. Well, her phone is on his Verizon account. Mm -hmm. He logged into his Verizon account and suspended her phone. And this is kind oh. of a big deal when it's discovered because when everybody looks at this case and the last time she was heard from was that Thursday at 825 in the morning when she sends a text, I'm on my way. Well, just shortly after 8 a.m., he had suspended her phone line. So if she wanted to text or call after that, she couldn't. Right. And if she was stranded somewhere, she couldn't even get a hold of anyone. Right. So the timing of when he decided to just cut that phone is really interesting to law enforcement. It doesn't clearly show any criminal act, but the timing is very unique. So they kind of put that in their back pocket and they're going to move forward. They're going to try to search for Nicole everywhere, but Montana is a big state, it is a big especially state. this part of Montana. And what time of year was it? It was February, February, so it was cold. It was cold. It was very cold in Montana. The wind up there at this time of year is just terrible, terrible. Right. So they keep trying to search for her. And then one day, all of a sudden, she makes a post on Facebook. She's somewhat apologetic. Hey, sorry, had a really good night last night. Got some things going on. I'll be home soon. Okay. Her poor sister just immediately is thinking, okay, she's okay. Like, what's wrong with her? Why aren't you contacting people? Why is this the only thing you're contacting? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, her sister realizes, mm, this still could, it's, it's shady. It's a little bit fishy. I'm not going to tell the rest of the family yet. Everything was spelled correctly. It's funny you're saying that. <sighs> That was one of the red flags is everything was spelled correctly. There was yes. no abbreviations. It's one of the easiest ways to see when somebody isn't making their own post. Yes. And that is where the sister kind of put the brakes on everything and immediately started thinking, I'm not sure this is Nicole. Something's just not right about this message. Mm -hmm. So that kind of goes in the investigative bundle of things that are happening, but it's still not okay. enough to really articulate what's happening. Uh, now we're going to talk about some really good police work in this case. He works for Montana DCI, Department of Criminal Investigations. Mark Hilliard, good guy. And Mark is on this case. He was very, very passionate about this case. He was diagnosed with cancer in the middle of this case and continued working it like a madman. Like, I've got it. Hats off to Mark. He did mm -hmm. a great job on this case. Mark's tenacity is going to make a big break in this case that arguably is what is ultimately going to start the dominoes falling to solve it. Okay. He looks at where she left the house, allegedly in Fairview. She looks at where the vehicle was recovered in Poplar, and he looks at the route. He then drives the route very meticulously, noting any surveillance cameras from point A to point B. There's one, and it's about 90 miles. It's a long route. Okay, where is, where is it at? Colbertson. Colbertson, Montana. It's on the high school at Colbertson, Montana. So there's an intersection. As you go through that intersection, there's a video camera on the high school there okay. that actually captures that, that intersection. Okay. So he pulls the video. Luckily, they still have the video. He watches it, and that morning, sure enough... There goes Nicole's car passing by. Hmm. Now, the video is not good enough to see who's driving, but it's clearly her car. But what really catches Mark's attention is 
the big red Ford F-350 that's following her. And it stands out because it's this giant red Ford truck, but it also has one of those yellow or amber emergency lights on the top of it. The light's not on, but it's clearly mounted to the top of the vehicle. Sure. I've got to give it to Mark because when he sees this, his immediate thought is that vehicle is following Nicole's vehicle and it's a unique vehicle. Can we find it? So he sets out to work and he discovers that just outside of Fairview, there's this individual by the name of Bill Sordeberg. Oh, I, here's a picture good, of Bill. It's good to see he dressed up for court, isn't it? Oh, you'd be surprised. That is dressed up for Bill. I assure you. Uh, Bill <laughs> the red flannel. No, he his vest is very dressy, I suppose. Yeah, Bill lives uh, in a junkyard. That's the only way I can. I was looking for some fancy way to explain it to everybody. He lives in a junkyard, his okay. own junkyard. Okay. Just outside of Fairview, there a ways, and they go to confront bill and it's the fbi agent and mark kind of a funny story funny but not funny and as soon as they pull up because he's out in the middle of nowhere when you go up bill's driveway he sees you from a mile away so okay. by the time they get to the house and dogs are barking running up i'm the drive. sure he and his wife are outside he walks out with a shotgun very close okay but they immediately see this big red ford f-350 truck with an amber light parked in the in the driveway right next to the house so oh. they're like oh this is our guy this is our truck okay it's cold so the FBI agent, hey, Bill, do you mind if we talk in the truck? It's cold. They get in the truck. Bill gets in the front passenger seat. FBI agent in the front driver's seat. Mark Hilliard from DCI in the back seat. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets in. They shut the door. The FBI agent turns to look at Bill. Bill's got a 45 held on the FBI agent. <gasps> and the FBI agent is like, hey, Bill, if you don't mind, can you please point that gun a different direction? Yeah. Which Bill complies, thank God, unloads it and puts it on the dash and begins to explain to them, I thought you were Hitman. And of course, they're like, why the hell would we be Hitman? And why would we ask you to sit in the vehicle? Stop it, yeah, Bill. Yeah, why not just hell? kill him right then and there when they walk up to the drive? Right, right. And he says, no, I thought Shrek had hired you two to come here and kill me. Bill, why would Shrek want you dead? Well, it has to do with that missing girl. <gasps> oh, do tell. Do tell. And what is the date that they're interviewing him? Do we know how far along we are? I want to say we're probably a month or two into the investigation. Some time has elapsed for sure. Enough time for him to be thinking that something is eventually going to go wrong because maybe he had involvement in this? Oh, he has involvement, 100%. Okay. And I think the biggest issue I have with Bill is Bill should have come forward. Bill knew she was missing. Bill knows he played a hand in that, and he's just been sitting on it. So I think, you know, in his there's own some, idle time, he's trying to figure out what's going to happen next. There's some guilt happening. Oh, he knows he's in the middle of this. What he starts to explain is on the morning of the 14th, about 830 in the morning, Cody Johnson, Shrek, decides to visit him. Hey, Bill, by any chance, do you have a 55-gallon drum with a locking lid that I could borrow? Oh. Um, no, Cody, what, what's up? Uh, I was just looking for an empty barrel. Um... Oh, by the way, I've got to run up to Poplar. Do you mind following me up there and giving me a ride back? Mm-hmm. 90 miles each way. Bill's a good friend because Bill says, sure, no problem. Let me know when you're going. So did he have a barrel? Bill claims to this day that he did not have a barrel. I've got, looked at Bill's house through Google Earth. Bill's got a lot of shit at his house. I'm going to say he's probably got a couple barrels, and okay. I'm sure they've got a couple locking lids. I do not believe, and no one's going to convince me, that Bill did not give him a 55-gallon drum that morning with a locking lid. And when we talk about a 55-gallon drum, that's huge. And I'm assuming because we're in an oil area rich of Montana. Dime a dozen. Right. Oh. Yeah. We have to put up a picture of what one of those drums would look like. Yeah. So the FBI agent <laughs> asked him, hey, uh, so did you go to Poplar? I did. And you followed him up there. I did. Well, what was he driving? A red Ford Expedition. Wait a minute. That's Nicole Waller's vehicle. Yep, I know. So I followed him up there. He told me he was just playing a trick on her. He dropped it on the side of the road, describes exactly where they found it. Mm -hmm. And then they start coming back. But Bill says, you know, I thought something odd was going on. Not because he asked for a 55-gallon drum or he's dumping his girlfriend's car on the reservation. But what got Bill's attention was two things. When he got out of the car up by Poplar... Uh -huh. He was wearing gloves, mm -hmm. which Bill thought was a little odd. But then when they stopped at a gas station, he noted Shrek's got two phones with him. And he proceeds to destroy one of those phones, take out the battery, throw it away, but crumple it up and destroy the phone there at the gas station. Did he say where he threw it away? Was it in a garbage can? Yeah, at the gas station there. Okay, so Bill's kind of a smart cookie. Bill absolutely knows Shrek 
is guilty of this homicide and probably knows a lot more information, but is probably trying to decide how much do I need to tell to keep my own butt out of jail and how much do I not tell to, to not protect Shrek? Because it's probably one of those small town communities where everybody knows everybody Very and so. everybody protects everybody with information. Very much so. But Bill is giving some really good information to launch this investigation to the next place. So okay. now Cody is firmly in the sites of law enforcement. They're going to end up serving a search warrant at his house. They believe that it's very, very possible this is where the murder occurred. If there is a murder, because we still haven't found Nicole's body. But is it possible Shrek kills her that morning at the house? No evidence. Nothing. No blood spatter. Everything is very, I mean, the house isn't the cleanest house, but it's in fairly decent order. There's okay. no missing carpet, no missing panels of walls. There's no indication at all in that house that anything happened. Hmm. So the search warrant's kind of a bust. They also seize his truck, process it. Really no evidence to be found in the truck with one exception. He's got a toolbox, you know, those big toolboxes they put in the back of trucks. Yeah, the diamond patterned yeah, toolboxes. Yeah. yeah, when they get into that toolbox, they find a safe that's wrapped in a garbage bag. Hmm. The safe is Nicole Waller's. What and was in it? A lot of her personal documents. Now, you have to remember, Nicole was texting people left and right on the 13th to borrow 100 bucks just trying to get home. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have things of value. So the, the idea that she has this safe because she's keeping her bars of gold, it's just lunacy, right? But it's whatever not, in a, is in a safe is extremely valuable to her. To her. And it's personal documents. And we're going to come back to what is in that safe of personal documents that could potentially be so valuable to her. But it's interesting. Of all the stuff Nicole had, this is the only only thing Cody has, and it's in the toolbox of his truck. Okay. Now, this is all happening in 2013. There's a timeline, an underlying timeline. We also have to coincide here. Okay. What were you doing in 2013? Oh, I was a cop on patrol. I was probably high centering my patrol car somewhere. That was a true story. How many times but, did you high center your car? I, I only high centered it once. I think I have um, a picture of that. But I did hit a lot of curbs. Um, I high centered it when I, okay, so here's the problem is that <laughs> when you get into the seat of a patrol car, you have to remember that there are a lot of people who sit in that same seat and you may get a random patrol car that you check out that's different, you know, all the time. But all of these people who sit in the seat are 100 to 200 pounds bigger than me. So the seats start to stink, to sink in. Stink and sink. <laughs> they stink and sink, actually, especially in the summertime when these huge guys and all of their gear start sweating in them. It's absolutely disgusting. So when I get into the car, the seat is sunken in and I can barely see over <laughs> the hood of the car, right? So, yeah, I high-centered one of my patrol cars once when... um. I couldn't actually see over this curb and it went down into this little embankment. It was terrible. There's actually a picture of me that we can find somewhere. Oh, I'm we sure. will post that picture. I have it. <laughs> 2013, I was also a cop. Um, it's interesting, though, with this case, and I'm going to segue for just a second here. My job in 2013 as a police officer is I was assigned to a fugitive apprehension team. My entire function was hunting down fugitives. So you either had to have a warrant or you had to have just committed a very violent crime. For us to be hunting you down and we used a lot of phone technology to do so and at the time i was really frustrated that i didn't feel we had good software to help interpret the call detail records on the side in my spare time i was developing a program because i knew what the records looked like when i got them and i knew after i spent hours and hours and hours looking at them what i needed to see but how could i do this without taking hours and hours and hours like i needed it to happen in a few minutes so i started watching youtube i taught myself how to program and i wrote a program that i could get these phone records from verizon i could dump them in this program in a matter of minutes they would spit out and they would show me on a map either where this phone was at or where it went day to day mm -hmm. but i was doing that as a police officer that was 2013. I remember you working on that. I remember I you, you do. watching YouTube and learning how to code. So let's move forward in our timeline. They feel pretty comfortable that Shrek has killed Nicole, but they just don't have enough to charge him. Okay. The other problem here is in Montana, Montana at the time had never had a successful prosecution of a homicide case where the victim's body was never recovered. They call it, it a no-body homicide. Yeah, it's a little slangy term. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a law enforcement criminal justice term, but a no-body homicide is the attempt to prosecute somebody for a murder where 
the body, which typically is your biggest piece of evidence, is never recovered. And it's very difficult to do. It's extremely difficult. And I've had a number of these. I've had a few dozen of them in my career, and I know they're really hard to make. So they're not moving forward on this case at this point. They're just trying to figure out what to do. And time is on their side, because if all of a sudden next week a camper or hunter finds Nicole's body, it changes everything. So 2014 rolls around. And at this point, Cody and Amber... They're a big time thing. In fact, Valentine's Day of 2014, the year anniversary, mm-hmm. Cody proposes to Amber. Oh, how sweet. On Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to propose to somebody, don't do it on a fake holiday. But anyway. <laughs> Every day is Valentine's <laughs> Day for us. In our house, it sure is. It really is. So they get married a few months later and they have a baby, little baby boy. That's sweet. What were you doing in 2014? I was getting ready to leave the police department and start a business with you. The business that we once knew as ZX. Right. And I promise there's a method to the madness today. But yes, in 2014 is I had that computer program working really, really well. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of interest from other people who wanted to buy it. And I realized it's time. I'm almost at my 20 year mark in law enforcement. It's time to go do something else. And I left the police department and we started ZX, which is a company that sold the software that I had built. And we also provided training. And we started in 2014. It was a rough year. We we were trying to get our feet under us as young entrepreneurs. And uh, there was a lot of struggles in 2014. But 2015 was a rough year too. Yeah, we're going to get there. (laughs) So it's funny you mentioned that August of 2015. What were you doing in August 2015? Do you remember? I don't remember. We were probably doing training somewhere or traveling somewhere. We were. Montana was one of our first big customers, predominantly fish and game, the wildlife investigators. Oh, is this one we went to Bozeman? Yes, we had done a couple training classes for the wildlife people. And with those classes, certain cases mm-hmm. are prosecuted by DCI, the Department of Criminal Investigations. So we were working with the state, even though it's through the wildlife people, and that starts to migrate into some other person's crimes outside of animal crimes. And in August of 2015, I was asked to take a look at a set of phone records. They had this crazy homicide or what they believed was a homicide in Sydney, Montana, Uh and they had never recovered the body. Was this when I was really sick and we were driving up there? Yes, I drugged you and I put you in the back and you slept pretty much the entire drive. We borrowed your mother's fifth will. Yes. Oh my gosh, I was so sick. Yes, he did. He drugged me up so that I would sleep pretty much from Arizona to Montana. Yeah, couldn't and stand I you. Did sleep. I was probably rolling around everywhere. That's okay. I figured you couldn't fall out, so you'd be fine. But I did feel much better by the time we got into Montana. Yeah, yeah, it was quite the trip. But it was, <laughs> it was interesting when I was first kind of reviewing this case to present it. Is the timeline's very interesting. When it starts, we're both police officers, we're developing the company. When Cody gets married and he thinks he's in the clear and Nicole's case has kind of hit a snag, we're right in the middle of launching this company that's the software that helps with cell phones. Mm -hmm. And a year later, we are front and center in the middle of this case looking at Cody Johnson's phone records. Well, it was actually one of our very, very first training courses that we did of a 40-hour for law enforcement in Montana. Under the name ZX, that's correct. I've been teaching it for years, but that was our first one as part of And it was for Montana. Uh, their Fish and Wildlife Division. So these records, and I'm going to defend the other investigators involved with this case. They also had phone calls, like who he called, where the cell site was, the sector information, which is which antenna on the, uh, the cell site it connected to. They had all that figured out. They had some other records that's called timing. And these can be very, very challenging records. And the, the columns alone, there's over 100 columns of data, just random numbers. And if you don't know what you're looking at, it just looks like a bunch of decimal point numbers. Well, not only is it a hundred columns of data, it's also hundreds of rows of information depending upon how many days of information they got. Right. And they had looked at these two or three times and just kind of whatever, like, what do you want us to do with this? Well, and every provider is different to interpret their data. Right. Uh, At the time though, I was doing a lot of work with Verizon. I understood these records really, really well. So they sent them to me and I looked at it and I thought, man, these are some of the best records I've seen in a long time. You guys have beautiful records. And they're like, what are you talking about? We have no idea what we have here. Mm -hmm. So I start looking at them and we're going to find some interesting little links here. Okay. I don't know anything about the case at this point. So I map the records and with these records, if you know what you're looking at, you can get near GPS accuracy. It's random. It's these random hits throughout the day. So you're not going to get this perfect breadcrumb trail Mm -hmm. where every second you're getting a location, but six minutes goes by, I might get two or three. Another 15 minutes goes by, I get one more. 
22 minutes later, I get one more. So you can start to piece together what this looks like. Well, I looked at the morning of February 14th, Valentine's Day morning. And if you remember right, this is when Cody slept in the little camp trailer at his work site. Mm -hmm. He gets up, he clocks into work, he works until noon, goes home and has lunch. And Nicole is supposed to be going back to Kalispell. Correct. And I have her phone too. And we have the same type of data from her phone. Because she was on his plan. Correct. At 6.51, there is no doubt Cody is at his work. He spent the entire night there. I do not in any way, I haven't seen anything that would show he wasn't there all night. But at 6.51, while he is at his job site, which is about 15, almost 20 miles away, he gets a text message from Nicole that says, you need to feed your dogs. Okay. Well, did she just decided not to feed the dogs before she left his house? Apparently. And she, he knows that she's leaving that morning. There's all kinds of text message history showing he knows she's leaving. See, even if you and I were very upset with one another, I would still expect that you would take care of my dog before you left somewhere. You know, you could try to get me back by telling me that you're pregnant when you're not. And I could probably forgive you for that. You don't feed my dog. I'm coming after you. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I'm not saying that's the motive yeah, here. That is grounds for death. But it definitely starts the morning on the wrong foot. Yeah, you Cody. can't mistreat an animal regardless of whether or not you yeah. like their owner. Well, this pisses Cody off, I think. But I think Cody has some other things going on here where everything starts to deviate. By 7.13, he's driving. He is moving away from his place of business. He's irritable. But he's also calling... Nicole. And mm-hmm. this starts a little pattern. The first call is three minutes and 22 seconds. When he hangs up, he calls her back 68 seconds. When he hangs up this time, calls her back 44 seconds. When he hangs up that time, 35 seconds. Hangs up that time, 53 seconds. Just calling and getting hung up, calling and hanging up, calling and hanging up. Mm-hmm. The entire time, he's driving from his workplace back to the house where Nicole is at. Okay. At 725, she sends that text message to the friend in Kalispell, I'm on my way. By my calculations, Cody is either pulling into the driveway as she's sending this text message okay. or within about a minute after she has sent it. Okay. And he goes home. From 725 to 740, he's at the house. No doubt about it. So about 15 minutes. At 742, he's headed back to work. So he makes the drive back to work. He arrives back to work around 812. Okay. Guess what he does? What? This is when he goes inside and disconnects and suspends her phone. Oh. He's only at work for 15 minutes. By 8.27, he's moving again. And now he's going to go to Bill's house. So he drives from his work out to Bill's house. This is the conversation. Do you have the barrel with the locking (laughs) lid? Oh, can you follow me up to Poplar? After he leaves Bill's house, straight back to the house, his house. So he's back at his house. From his house... And we don't know if he has the barrel or not. According to Bill, he doesn't. But I don't believe Bill. I think he does. And I'll, Hmm. I'll tell you why here in a little bit. Okay. He goes back to his house. He's at his house for only about 23 minutes. Then he goes to what I believe is a barn in between his workplace and his house that is somehow linked to family members. Of his. Of his. He's at that barn for just a little bit of time. Then he goes back up by the house and then he heads to Poplar, turns his phone off. What would he do inside of a barn? I believe... He's hiding a 55-gallon drum with Nicole's body inside. He needs to put it somewhere before somebody comes to the house looking for her. Well, who's coming to the house? Amber. Do you know what's awkward when your girlfriend gets to your house? A dead body in the kitchen. And your other dead girlfriend is there? Yes, it does not play out well. That would be awkward. Turns off his phone. He and Bill go to Poplar. They drop off Nicole's car. Timing is interesting of when he wants to play this trick on Nicole, right? Mm -hmm. Comes back as he arrives back into Sydney at 1230. He turns his phone back on and he is home. He stays home for a little bit of time, about 1230, 1245, Mm -hmm. heads back to work. He's at work the rest of the day. He leaves work around five, five thirty. goes home. He's at home until about 7.30. Then he leaves again, swings by the barn, down to Sydney, and then he's going to leave on a, a road that's just south of Sydney, and he's going to go about 15 to 20 miles out into the nothing, out in the fields and oil fields is all that's out there. How many ingresses and egresses of roadway are there into and out of the Sydney area where he lives? You can okay. go due north, due south. You can go east, which is almost immediately North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And then there's two ways you could go out to the west. One goes up northwest and one just goes due west. He takes the one that goes due west. Okay. He's out there for about 30 minutes and then he goes back home. I believe he's now moved the barrel from the barn 
out to an oil field and a 55 gallon drum sitting at some of these little oil fields or oil sites out there it's normal nobody would think anything because amber's showing up in the morning sure he's got to clean out his mess right mm-hmm. so amber does show up on the 15th they spend the weekend together have a great weekend according to the text messages on sunday oh she's very very thankful for the time loved their time together and oh. is looking forward to spending more time with him well, I'm sure it was really nice that Nicole wasn't texting him over and over again. She wasn't bothering him at all. Just interrupting all of their loving Nothing. time together. Yes, which is interesting because Amber had to hurry to get her text messages in about how much she enjoyed the time because she's now driving back to okay. Lewiston and she's texting him how much she loved his trip. But then she had to hurry because he turns his phone off. Oh, did he explain to her that he was turning his phone off? No, it's off for five, about five and a half hours. Oh, as soon as Amber is out of town, mm-hmm. we see him go back down close to the highway that leads out to the oil fields I was talking about. And as he's getting into that area, he turns his phone off. His phone is now off for five and a half hours. He doesn't turn it on until he's coming back into Sydney. And he's on that road that kind of goes out northwest of Sydney. So how far do you think he could have traveled within a five and a half hour period of time outward and back. So there's a couple factors that are going to come into play here. Number one, it was snowing. The roads were really bad. Mm -hmm. So that immediately is going to slow down. So we have a search radius of about 150 miles around Sydney. That is enormous. You're never going to effectively search this area. It's all open. It's wide open. Right. And I got to give it to Mark Hilliard. He gave it a hell of a try. That guy's walked over all kinds of territory and terrain out there looking for poor Nicole. The thing is, the ground would be frozen. It's going to be difficult for him to bury a barrel out there. We're going to come back to this. And I know there was a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of like little caverns and sinkholes and old abandoned mines and drill holes out in this area. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of thoughts that maybe he knew of some of these and he just rolled the barrel down in there. But hold that thought for a second, because okay. I have a new theory that I want to get into here in a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more, though, about what the phones show. At lunchtime, when he gets back from dumping the car, when I got the text messages, now that I'm seeing the whole phone conversation, he's having a conversation with Amber. And this gets really interesting to me, the timing. So just so everybody's tracking, we're back to Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. We believe he leaves work, goes to the house, kills Nicole, goes to Bill's, gets the barrel, comes back to the house, puts Nicole in the barrel, hides it in a barn, and then he takes Nicole's car and he dumps it in Poplar, Bill following. Mm -hmm. Bill drives him back, drops him off at the house. So now he's at his house having lunch just before he goes back to work. While he's at the house, he's sending a text message to Amber that, hey, I had Frank put padlocks on the door yesterday. And he's talking about Nicole's house in Kalispell. I also made sure all the windows were closed and locked. Amber responds, rolling on the floor laughing, quote, that is awesome. Oh, that's cruel. Cody responds, I told you I had a plan. (gasps) And he's literally having this conversation with Amber as he gets back to the house from executing what I believe is this homicide at this point. So the timing of that one's really interesting. I'm gonna start piling on more evidence here. When you go back and you look at the text message history, why is he telling Amber about the padlocks? Amber is putting enormous pressure on Cody leading up to Valentine's Day. To be done with her. You've got to get, it's me or her. Either you get rid of Nicole or I'm out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And there's hundreds of text messages back and forth. Sure. And he's saying, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I've got a plan. I'm trying to manage it. I just need a couple days. And she keeps pushing him. Well, I don't know if I can give you a couple more days. Like I'm pretty much done. So he's getting a little desperate, but at the same time, I'm sure he's annoyed with all of the crap that he's having to put up with from Nicole. But it goes further because breaking up with someone is much of an inconvenience and a pain in the ass and emotional draining as that could be. Yes. It's also just, I'm done. Leave. Right. Things are going to change here. On the 12th, he starts texting this guy in Kalispell to go put the padlocks on the house. So he's already planning on locking up her house on the 12th. On the 13th, he hits that guy back and tells him, hey, our plan, it has to happen tonight. He needs the locks on the house the night of the 13th. Mm -hmm. After he tells the guy in Kalispell, make sure you lock the house up, he hits up Carmen, who is Nicole's sister. Okay. Out of the blue. And Carmen's like, who is this? And he has to even tell her, oh, it's Cody. And he's trying to have this deep conversation about Nicole and if she thinks that they can get Nicole the help that Nicole needs. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But you have to think, he just locked her and her kids out of her house that she's been paying him for. Why does he care? It's all a show. The whole thing is show. This is pre-planning. He is pre-planning 100% this murder. Right. And he set this thing in motion on the 12th. I believe the text to Carmen on the 13th was his kind of get out of jail free card later of, no, I was trying to help her. I was trying to, trying to find treatment for her. I was trying, I was talking to her sister about Almost how we Almost to show her. that Nicole, uh, he felt some, there were issues with Nicole coming along that yes. led to her disappearance and on her he, own. And then he paints the story to law enforcement that he and Nicole were fighting the night of the 13th. And that's why he went to go stay at the camp trailer. But if you read Nicole's text messages, he never comes home that night. They may have had some conversations on the phone, but they don't fight. And then when he gets to the trailer, what's really interesting is the picture he took of the trailer. He takes that picture to send to Amber because he's telling Amber, I'm not at the house. I'm not around Nicole. I'm staying with my buddy. Here's a picture. And she even tells him, you didn't need to send a picture. I believe you. It's an alibi. He's right. setting up. I wasn't even home on the 13th or 14th. Sure. Then that morning, he punches the time clock to show that he's at work before he drives to the house. All of this is super, super pre-planned. Okay, this makes sense. He gets the text message about feeding the dogs, knowing that she's getting ready to go back to Kalispell. For the first time that I can find in the records, he blows her phone up. Signs nonstop. of stress. He doesn't want her to leave. Oh. And Nicole is very much in love with Cody still. If he's calling, she's going to wait. Right. It's it's a means for her to stick around for attention and for communication. Yes, but he needs her to continue that plan of, I'm on my way back to Calispell. So was she just not responding to his text messages and that's why he kept blowing her up? No, he's calling her and she's answering. They're talking and then they're oh. hanging up and then they're talking and then they're hanging up and then they're talking. We don't know what was said. Okay. But it, it works perfectly for Cody's plan because Nicole still thinks she's leaving. She's texting people, I'm leaving. And he needs that for his plan here to be like, well, I don't know, she left. Sure. If that makes any sense. Yes. It's kind of interesting. And obviously we don't know what the conversation was when he gets to the house that morning. I suspect it had something to do with that document. The thing that Cody needs that he doesn't have is the document about the house. Amber also wants that house. And if it's... In Nicole's name or Nicole is buying it, they're never going to be rid of Nicole. We're talking about the document that showed that they both had some type of ownership of the house in Kalispell. That she had already paid him some money and that was, she's buying that house from him. Was it some type of civil written agreement between the two of them? Correct. Okay. And either he can't find it, she's not willing to give it, one thing leads to another. And for Cody, this is worth killing over. This is when he's going to kill Nicole. And obviously, we don't know how he killed Nicole. I can surmise that it wasn't a super bloody scene or even really a bloody scene mm -hmm. because the house was perfectly clean. He wanted a happy Valentine's Day. Amber, here's the keys to yes. your house. You just nailed it on the head. Perfectly stated. There's a lot of thoughts that have been thrown out. Well, is this pre-planned? Is it really not pre-planned? Well, why is he just now looking for a barrel? Wouldn't he have already had a barrel, you know, ready to go? But again, I've seen satellite imagery of Jim's house. I think Cody thought, no, I can go to Jim's and get a barrel at any time. So mm -hmm. I don't see that that is really an issue. You have to remember he's super under the gun with Amber coming. The padlocks to me just set this whole stage. Nobody knows that he locked that house up. He did it behind everybody's back. And remember, she lives there with her kids. Right. It would never hold up legally. Where were her kids at this time when he locked up the house? Were they with her, her in Sydney? Her ex-husband. Okay. Well, who's going to become her ex-husband. But I think the thing with locking the padlock, he doesn't know if that document is with her or if that document's in the house. And I think what he wants to secure is when he kills her, he's gonna have control of the house and control of whatever's in her car so that he can search through and find what he needs to find without anybody else taking it. Did Bill say if he spent time going through her car or he probably already did before he asked Bill to take it out? Yeah, Bill never says anything, but we know the safe ends up in his truck. truck. And when they do get into the safe, the house document is in there. So that he, was her most valuable possession. It was. that. If you look at her financial means, she had more money invested in that purchase of that house than anything else she had going on in her life. And she was asking everybody for money for help. Correct. So everything is going to come in when we go to court. They're going to make an arrest based on the phone information. And this is a big deal in Montana. Montana has never prosecuted a case where they didn't have the victim's body. Mm -hmm. uh, Dateline, Josh Makowitz did a piece on this. I think it was called Under the Prairie Sky. And even Dateline attributed 
the ZX program that we created in 2013 mm -hmm. and 2014 is what blew this case open. This is what changed the entire thing is when you look at the phone patterns that morning, mm -hmm. paints such a different story. And Cody's lying big time. Right. So everything's going to come in that we did and Cody's going to testify and not well, I might add. Okay. He is going to admit to dumping her car as a practical joke. He was being childish is what he said. Mm. He's going to admit that he found somebody who had Nicole's login to Facebook and had that person post the, the fake message, making it appear that Nicole was still alive. Who would have done that besides him? No, the guy came in and testified. There was a guy oh, that Nicole really? knew somehow that had her passwords and he convinced this guy to make the post. And the guy came into court and testified. I made the post because Cody asked me to. I knew I shouldn't have. I feel terrible about it. Oh my gosh. But he did it because Cody asked him to. Cody seems to be a very influential person in this town. Well, yeah. Uh, Shrek. <laughs> he doesn't look an orange, does No, he? no, he doesn't look good, period. He admitted <laughs> to going to the house after lying to law enforcement. He then admitted, no, I did go to the house. But when I got there, she was already gone. Yeah, the car was still there, mm -hmm. but she was gone. Convenient. He admits to turning her phone off. And this is a really big piece that we haven't talked about yet. Your service gets stopped from your phone. Mm -hmm. Your service gets turned back on. How does your phone know that the service is off. It connects to the it cell connects site. To the cell site to turn your phone And the phone cell off. site says you either have service or not. Mm -hmm. How does your phone know when it has services again? It it's still to connecting the to the cell site. This dummy thought when he suspended Nicole's phone that morning. That it would disconnect from the it cell It disconnected. Site. But this is why your phone works even if you don't have service and you dial 911 because it's still talking Correct. to cellular networks. So when this idiot kills her and starts driving around to Bill's house, to the barn, He's got her phone. And it's her still phone connecting. is traveling with him. So when he says, I got home that morning and she was already gone, uh -huh. he can't account for the fact that all of a sudden Nicole's phone is perfectly traveling with him until he turns them both off on his way to Popular, which then Bill fills in the gap to say, I watched him destroy a phone after we dumped off the car. So now he has to account for not only did he not see Nicole when he gets home, but somehow magically he came into possession of her phone without seeing her. And everybody who knows Nicole, she lives on her phone. Right. She's not going to leave it behind. Yeah. And he has the phone before he turns the service off. So his whole story about her being annoying and that he was turning the phone off because he was tired of her texting and calling, he had possession of the phone when he did it. Interesting. Pretty damning evidence at this point. And like Cody. I said, he testifies and he does a terrible job. Juries are tough sometimes. You never know what type of jury you're going to get. So whenever we give a case to the jury and we're waiting for the verdict to come back, it can be painstaking, just waiting, waiting and waiting. Mm -hmm. Not in this case. It was under two hours. Jury came back and said, yeah, we know what he did. We're ready to render our verdict. And oh. He's going to be found guilty. Now, this is his jail picture. And I keep calling him uh, Shrek. Like, I don't know how else to summarize Shrek than right here. And I am going to do the green screen. I think that was a great idea you It's have. definitely the side profile that says the it all. The side profile is brutal. Oh, well, well, he's he's a big guy. He's a big guy. He ain't no looker, though. Like, it surprises me he's got these women. Anyway. It's a small town. <laughs> small town. He yeah, makes good money. He's having to import them. They're coming from out of town. <laughs> Across the state. Across the state. <laughs> There's something I want to get into. Yeah, Cody's in prison. He's probably going to spend the rest of his life there. Nicole's family wants to find Nicole. And mm -hmm. I think that's reasonable. If it yeah. was a loved one of mine, I don't know why I feel like that would give me a different piece of closure, but I really feel like it would give me some closure. Like I would really have a lot of angst knowing my loved one is in an unknown area in a barrel. Like that's just tough to, right. to stomach, right? Mm -hmm. The prosecution realized this. They offered him a deal before going to trial, give us her body. We'll give you a 20 year sentence. He's still out, he's not that old. Yeah. He would have been out at a relatively still young age. He still would have had some life left, turned it down. Oh. When they convicted him, in between the conviction and the sentencing, it's usually a couple months before you actually get sentenced to prison, they offered him another deal. Show us where her body is and we'll reduce your sentence. He turned it down. Josh Makowitz, Dateline. Mm -hmm. They do Under the Prairie Sky. Josh gets somewhat invested in this case. They go back and they interview him now that he's been sitting in prison for a little bit of time. And Josh does a pretty good job. He gets on Cody, okay. like gets on him on him. Like you're just letting this family suffer. Why would you do that? Cody gets pissed, loses his shit, tells Makowitz to go fuck himself right. <laughs> like on camera. Uh -huh. And I've talked to Josh about this and Josh is like, no, I thought he was going to beat my ass. And then mm -hmm. Josh's producer is like, 
no, this dude's about to beat both of us up. And he got up and he stormed off and they actually brought him back and they finished the episode. Mm -hmm. But he's been asked three times, where is she at? And he usually ends his no response with, I will wait for my appeals to go through. Just convinced he's going to get off. Well, in March of 2023, his appeals wore out. The Montana Supreme Court said, no, actually went all the way to the district court. I turned him down. He's not going anywhere. This dude is going to sit in prison the rest of his life. And I think there's terrible people who commit homicides. When you commit a homicide like this and you hide the body and you're convicted, like five different ways, your appeals Mm -hmm. are shut down, you're spending the rest of your life in prison, you have a 10-year-old son who's going to start figuring out what kind of person dad is, Mm -hmm. and you still have not revealed where the mother of these kids three kids are are the sister regardless if you were the biological the daughter of this yes kid. just the inhumanity of just being a terrible piece of shit at this point Do you really think maybe it's me. because amber truly believes he was innocent he doesn't want amber or his son ever really believing that he did it so he just won't confess to it for amber amber sat through the trial For Amber to truly believe without any doubt at all that he's guilty makes her one of the dumbest people on the face of the earth. Because she was also interviewed as well by police. Yes. And that was a weird thing she said during the interview. I have a list of people who will testify that Cody was at work that morning, which we know is bullshit. Why would she need a list of people to testify? This was early on. So I don't know what he's hanging on to, but it drives me me nuts. I've actually thought about trying to get an interview with him, but I I just don't think he's going to say anything. Yeah. But I want to put a little bit of hope into this. This case has stuck with me because I've always thought I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to help find Nicole. When we decided to do this case, I started reevaluating the entire case. So I spent quite a bit of time looking at things. And about three o'clock the other morning, wide awake, can't sleep because this case just hit me again. And there's something that hit me that I want to go back to. And I feel dumb for missing it years ago. He's not just looking for an oil drum. He was very specific. He needed an oil drum with a locking lid. And when I started thinking about, I've got a body and not bragging, I've had to work a lot of homicide cases where we recover people who got dumped in the desert. Trying to dump a body in an oil drum anywhere on land Mm -hmm. seems really, really hard to me. Well, that's what I was thinking about. You can't just dump it on land and leave it out because it would probably be easy for people to go look through every barrel drum. It's February. The ground is frozen in Montana. You're not digging. You're not digging a hole big enough quickly. Right. So I started doing some research. There is a long history, specifically of mechanics, Mm -hmm. specifically in North Dakota and eastern Montana, of people dumping used motor oil in barrels. When that area blew up with the oil boom industry, hazardous materials and used oil was a big thing. Okay. If you fill an oil drum to the very tippy top and you put a lid on it and it's a locking sealed lid, it will sink. It will not float. So they're just dumping them into the water in Montana. Any body of water that's probably four or five feet deep or deeper, you can conceal a barrel of oil. So the route that he took is So I recalculated the route. I think I might have found something. It's really interesting. So knowing that there's this long history, one of my theories is he would know this. Being in the trade that he's in, doing the mechanic work that he's in, even if he's never done it, he probably has worked with somebody who has in that area. Mm -hmm. And when I say there's a long history, there's been more hazardous material dumping in North Dakota in this little area right where they're at in Montana than anywhere in the country. Well, I think there is a lot of Montana because I remember we were river rafting one year there and we were actually told for a long time nobody could get in the water in this river because it was so toxic. Yes. And they have a lot of oil spills, but there's a lot of hazardous material. Just outside of Sydney, it's on the North Dakota side. There's this hazardous material dumping ground. The the mountain that they've created burying these barrels is like 50 feet high. Like this is a prolific area for dumping barrels. So I started thinking, I know which road he was on when he came back to Sydney. Because when he turns his phone on, he's not in town yet. Mm -hmm. And he's coming from the northwest. So he's traveling southwest or southeast into Sydney. So he's coming from this road that goes out to the northwest. We can estimate about 150 miles, but then you throw some decent snow on the road. It's probably going to come down to less than that, maybe 90 to 100 miles out. There's two bridges on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. One is known as the Poplar Bridge. We Mm -hmm. talked about Poplar. It's only a few miles from where he dumped the car. So clearly he has some type of affinity for that area because he already dumped the car there. And he would know the route. 
he would know the route and there's this remote bridge that doesn't have a big guardrail. The water, I checked, the water, it's the Missouri River that it goes under. The water's about 18 feet deep there. It would clearly hide it. This time of year, late e or late afternoon, early evening, mm-hmm. he could pull his truck and he's in his work truck. He could pull his work truck on the side of that bridge and dump that barrel in a couple minutes, if not Easily less. by himself, just roll Correct. it out. Because he's a big guy. Yeah, about 20 miles west of the Poplar Bridge is the Lewis and Clark Bridge. And it is pretty much the exact same thing. Hmm. I don't think he's going to go through all this effort and go to a body of water and try to roll. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's heavy. It's cold. He's not getting in the water. It'd be hard to get the full barrel down. Mm-hmm. But the more I started thinking about if it was a sealed barrel and he put some weight in there and even filled it with some type of a fluid with her in there, sealed it up. If you dropped it off a bridge, it's going to sink. Yeah. I've done a little research. Nobody has explored that I can find this theory yet. So I've got a couple pictures here for you just to kind of put this of how easy this would be. This is the Poplar Bridge. Okay. And you could imagine it's rural. So a car comes up cross that bridge every 20 or 30 minutes, it would surprise me. And which river is this one? This is this is the Missouri, the Missouri. River. Okay. But you could see in a work, a big work truck with a, a 55 gallon drum, mm-hmm. I could back up to that little guardrail and push that thing off in a right. minute or two very easily. This is the Lewis and Clark Bridge. The water depth at the Lewis and Clark Bridge, about 22 feet. Oh. So, and both of them are easily within range. I could drive there and back in that time frame. he has the phone off. So do we have a dive trip coming up to Montana? <sighs> I don't want to dive in that water because it seems <laughs> terrible, but I I know there's a lot of companies that specialize in this. You wouldn't have to dive. They make sonar that would be very easily. It's only about a 22-mile stretch of river. Mm -hmm. It's on the reservation, which complicates it. I'm not suggesting anybody go search these areas. Because it's on the reservation, you've got to work with the reservation to make sure that you're there legally. We've had some experience with this. Yes, I do have experience being on a reservation illegally. (laughs) So, But yeah, I think I would love to say maybe after the summer, we're going to do a part two of this episode. Mm -hmm. If you watch this and you're aware of some of those companies that specialize in this, reach out to us. We are looking for someone to team up and partner with. But I think I'm willing to put some time and effort into this theory and see if we can find Nicole. Would be interesting. So happy Valentine's Day. I love you. I love you too. Join (laughs) us next week for The Missing Mennonite. We look forward to seeing you back. Have a great week. (laughs) 